0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer, Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought
1: to you by Pulgrain Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include...
1: Historical Sword and Sorcery. Gwen Marshall. Egregors, And Edith Maida Lessing.
0: Ken, do you know anything about kitties?
1: I might.
0: But do you know about magical kitties?
1: I know everything. Everything about magical kitties save the day. A new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem.
0: In Magical Kitty Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and
1: save the day. You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make
0: human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans.
1: The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's.
0: And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and
1: love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure.
0: A play graphic novel adventure.
1: Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game.
0: Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young
1: as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties.
0: A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM.
1: If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games,
0: Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you
1: mean perfect? I also do not.
0: Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming live. Welcome us once more into the decadent confines of the Stygian Gaming Hut. Because beloved Patreon backer Jesse Lowe has axed us, given Start With Earth, as it should be a given. What is the best historical period for sword and sorcery role-playing, excluding the Hellenistic world? It's almost as though he knows the go-to answer. Right.
0: So, I have a couple of alternate answers.
1: Yeah. I have a number of answers.
0: And, uh... I guess I will kick it off. Now, granted, this overlaps. There's a couple of hundred years overlap with uh, the Hellenistic era at the end, but this the, this group had a long flourishing, so you can easily do this before the Hellenistic era, or you can just center it on a different area. And I would start with the Scythians, hey. because they're uh, nomadic warriors. You've got your uh, your warrior queens, as well as your tribal kings. You've got your exciting ecstatic rites and uh you've got your drunkenness uh and uh and also the use of uh, uh marijuana for both healing and ritual purposes they mm-hmm. would like throw the seeds on hot rocks and so, so that gives you your your basic sword and sorcery characters you're out on the fringes of society and eventually uh wind up uh conquering a bunch of stuff and for a role-playing setting the cool thing about the Scythians is that they 're not only nomadic, but they ride around in their carts with a whole little you know warrior slash family unit so you 've got a whole group of supporting characters with you to go back and report to your cart after your big adventure and where you can go and get patched up and and uh, that gives the g m some uh, running characters to play, even though you're roaming around finding adventure and getting into trouble and and no doubt. Finding towers with sorcerers in them, uh, which of course are very historically accurate, and uh, going up and killing them.
1: And when you go down into Persia, you can say, I be like not these cities, they have not the open expanse of the honest steps. That'll be good fun. Yeah. My uh, first sword and sorcery alternative is, I guess, sort of the beginning of yours, because it uh, is something that I've thought of as a really good possibility, I think. Ever since the Exalted Sidereals came out, uh, I don't know if anyone remembers Exalted or Sidereals. Sidereals were the sort of star magicians in Exalted, and they uh, ran around and did cool stuff with the stars. And I thought, as always, I thought, why are you wasting this cool idea on a made-up world no one cares about, instead of writing a incredibly abstruse game of Babylonian star sorcery that even <laughs> fewer people care about? And when I I thought that... Star sorcery is so abstruse, though, that the barbarians hardly even get mad at it. Well, that's the point, is that set it during the Bronze Age Collapse... Robin, when all the cities are falling apart in earthquakes, the peoples of the sea are flowing up in their fancy new armor to attack uh, the entire coastline. The Hittites are, are turtling up. There's uh, chariot folk riding around, probably the uh, proto-Cimerians uh, the, that will turn into the, Sum- the historical Sumerians, not uh, Robert E. Howard Sumerians, but you can probably say Sumerian, and only a couple of people will look at you askance, but you've got all of the fun. Uh, the Scythians sort of show up at the very tag end of this, perhaps, again, proto-Scythians, you got your barbarism, you got your ancient magics, you got your fallen ruin civilizations, all those earthquake-hit cities, and you've got your uh, successful, or at least surviving, horribly decadent civilizations to wit, Egypt and Babylon, and those can generate any number of vile sorceries or or rubies the size of a plover's egg for you to uh, deal with. And I think that the Bronze Age Collapse has the other advantage of having not a lot of real, you know, year by year nitty gritty note about it. So you can just sort of make it up and say, well, I feel like we're going to tie this into the Trojan War and no one can argue with you because we're not sure when the Trojan War was, except it was sometime in the 50 year window around the Bronze Age Collapse. And uh, if you don't want to do that say, oh, nope, Troy's still standing, or Troy got burned down long long ago, there's nothing there for you. We're over here in uh, fun territory of Ugarit, and uh, knock yourself out.
0: Now with the Scythians, that's an easy one as to who the player characters are. They're the Scythians. It makes total sense. They're wandering adventurers. Uh, Who are the player characters here are they the uh, city folk in the collapse or are they the people on the fringes who are coming in to take advantage of it
1: well i mean the classic swords and sorcery hero are the barbarians from outside so they would be the sea peoples or they would be the chariot folk the sort of metanny type guys you might also of course be playing perfectly decent city folk who are just had your city fall in and now there's barbarians everywhere and you have to piece together sorcery to defend yourself that's you know flipping the genre on its head, but I think it could be good fun. You could play, you know, a, a collection of adventurers. You, you know, one of you is an Egyptian wizard who was thrown out for impious thoughts about Amun-Ra. One of you could be a, a Hebrew, you know, trick-writing, hard-shooting uh, female warrior of the Deborah sort. One of you could be a straight-up sea people, you know, a goon squad guy. And one of you could be a cunning uh, a rogue from the Syrian provinces or somewhere. Just build a whole croup, you know, from the whole uh, melange of the Bronze Age uh, collapsing as it indeed does.
0: So my uh, other pick would be Byzantium. Oh, yeah. Byzantine Empire, because that gives you your... I I think you need some sort of feeling of antiquity in Sword and Sorcery. If you go too far uh, into the medieval era, you're, uh, you know, past the Dark Ages, and then you're beginning to feel more like Cod Tolkien instead of Cod Howard. Mm -hmm. And that's a vast... A chunk of history to cover uh, if you really want to stick with the sword and sorcery vibe you start before christianity is is widely adopted but there's a point in history in byzantine history that it's just got so much going on in it that even though it's post-christian i think i would that would be the point of departure from other sword and sorcery settings and that's during the reign of justinian uh when everything goes nuts and collapses and it's got all sorts of great other characters the uh john of cappadocia the the heroic tax collector there's Belisarius, the great general and uh justinian's uh, empress is an incredible character who i think you should probably do a whole profile bit on she's great and it's a time of great ferment in the city you've got uh, factions that have sprung up the the greens and the blues and it's sort of Mysterious and made extra mysterious by Edward Gibbon because it's more fun that way as to what their conflict exactly was with each other. Sometimes they're described as basically rival sports teams who would go to the arena and cheer uh, at the circuses, but they wind up uh, banding together against the emperor and there's a big rebellion and a horrible massacre in the stadium. And that would be, you know, your big. A historical sweep thing right at the end of your campaign, and again, in order to have sword and sorcery characters, having you be the Byzantine bureaucrats—that's that's a different game. Mm. But there's all sorts of people coming in to serve as guards and lots of Hunnic mercenaries. Yeah, so there's mercenaries. The empire is expanding, so you can you know have gotten in a fight nearly uh, anywhere and come there, and so you could be like the the Goths and the Thracians were the ones that actually ended up committing the massacre. Um, but I think that would be a, a great mix of familiarity and unfamiliarity. There isn't even really a lot of Roman-based uh, role-playing, but to have it in Byzantium afterwards, I think it's even more off our radar. It's like, this is the, you know, hey, we didn't have a Dark Ages. We were fine the whole time. Uh, and that whole history is full of color and is uh, familiar enough to be recognizable and unfamiliar enough to you know, introduce all sorts of uh, crazy and, and wacky things to your uh, uh, characters. And uh, if you, uh, and, and there there is religious conflict. It's just, it's not between the worshipers of different gods, but it's between different heretical strains of thought or orthodoxy and, and heresy. The the heresy is the, the one that held that Christ's, Uh, nature was not dual but was singular and that was a great reason for lots of people to kill each other that was an important distinction and so i think that gives you a a lot of uh, color and you just have to add you know magic and, and dragons and stuff to it.
1: And, and if you want your slumbery old ancient empire on the fringes, that's what Persia's there for. Byzantium also gets super fun in the ninth century when the Vikings show up and try and sack the city and are basically laughed off by a civilization that has had Greek fire for 600 years. That's good fun, too. But you got your Vikings, and that's another classic uh, barbarian uh, hero type. And, and many of them eventually took jobs guarding the walls themselves as the famous Varangian guard, so, if you don't mind it being set a little bit later, where you're fighting, you know, uh, Turks and uh, Arabs, as well as Bulgars and other Byzantines a lot, then uh, the ninth century is another good look-in for Byzantium. Right. My other setting is on the other side of the Middle Ages, so we hop Tolkien again, and I feel like... The, you know, Solomon Cain is in a really good period. Uh, He's late 16th, but I feel like the 17th century or sort of musketeers, affair of the poisons, the classic pirate era. What was covered by the old GURPS swashbucklers book is also really good swords and sorcery because you have your swords right there. It's in the name. You have your sorcery. As I mentioned, you've got not just uh, your evil, vile uh, Satanism, and uh, you've got your witch cult, if you want to, you know, dip into Lovecraft a little bit, or Margaret Murray. And then you also have uh, the native uh, magics that are responding to being, you know, grabbed by a bunch of pesky Frenchmen and put to work in sugar factories. So you have the beginnings of Vodun arising in the Caribbean, plus the old, darker uh, human sacrifice gods of the Aztecs that are probably still living. Lurking around, causing trouble, and uh, so again, you've got a anything from the salons of Paris, you know, the decadent alleyways there, all the way out to the frontiers of Africa and the Caribbean, and uh, maybe even India if you wanted to go that way. But you can get some good Conan-style globe trotting in, and of course, Robert E. Howard wrote plenty of historical fiction, not quite in the 17th century, but he certainly, you know. He, he brackets the area pretty well himself with his other uh, historical adventure stories. And I feel like...
0: It, it gives you a bit of a high, hybrid, you know, cutlasses and sorcery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, you are your pirates and your Puritans and all of those other things. And uh, that, I think, gives uh, a great, you know, sort of extra layer of uh, unexpected flavor to the classic uh, trope. So you the could the just,
1: Howardian standard. Yeah, yeah, so you
0: could just take, you know, Howard's Conan stories, let alone the Solomon Cain ones, and just you know, reskin them and find mm-hmm. ways for them to match.
1: Know, oh, Prince that in the ages before America rose, there was a land undreamed of known as France and fun happens when.
0: So uh, I think now that we've got a whole bunch of places to uh, fight our evil wizards in that it's time for us to uh, move on out of this exciting segment full of horrors and, and awfulness and creatures who uh, want to eat us and treasures and wine. And I don't know, Let's see what's on the other side of this one. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt
1: city clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner, And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek
0: glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press.
1: Once more, it's time for Ken and or Robin Talks To someone else. And today it is me, Ken, talking to someone else. And the someone else is Gwen Marshall of Arcanist Press. And we are talking at Gen Con. So if I sound weird or there is happy noises from outside the closed door, that's why. Gwen, of course, will sound wonderful because that is how this works. Gwen, thanks so much for coming on the show. I guess if people know you, they know you as the mastermind or begetter or whatever of. Ancestry and culture, the sort of 5e plug-in, I guess I want to say, that instead of being a race, like a halfling or whatever, you are now of the mountain halflings or something like that. Is that a good understanding? Uh, Yeah.
2: I mean, in principle, basically, you choose, uh, instead of just choosing race, you choose a biological ancestry and Mm -hmm. then a, a cultural heritage. Right. So you might be of the mountain halflings... As in raised by them, but mm-hmm. you might have dwarven parents.
1: Right. So, you know, an orphan dwarf raised in the mountains by kindly halflings. That's right. Who wanted someone who could smell mithril. And you've done that book. I think it won an Annie, right? Mm-hmm. And two, uh, two Annie's, mm-hmm. And then you did some sequels with customizing ancestries and cultures Mm -hmm. And then also just a whole bunch of new ones.
2: Yeah, so expanding, because the original book just took the uh, races in the uh, SRD, which is just your five or six generics. Mm -hmm. And I built out, let's say OGL friendly versions of all your favorite fantasy tropes.
1: Fantastic. Um, what are some of the, uh, nuggets and Easter eggs you hid in there for the kids?
2: Oh, well, um, there's definitely a lot of fun. Oh gosh, timely, in fact, uh, spelljammer flavored.
1: Ooh, space uh, halflings. Yeah,
2: space halflings. Yeah. Space hippos,
1: even. Space hippos. Easily the best kind of hippo, except for the dancing ones. Now, have you thought, or have other people thought, because of course, this is how my, you know, system works my brain Mm -hmm. as you know we start with earth have you thought about providing historical examples or are there sort of serial numbers filed off historical examples you can look at it in the way the greyhawk had those are vikings we all know they're vikings Mm -hmm. Gary just own up be a man do you have Really, Vikings wink in the expanded books, or is that something you didn't want to get into because of the historical valences?
2: Well, loosely, yes. So, those are all uh, human culture options, mm-hmm, right? Uh, and but I did it by geography. So, right. G&D provides us with these environments mm-hmm. that have different features like coastal and mountain and desert. So, there are human cultures for each. Mm-hmm. So, and it, some of them, yeah, you might say, Oh, that reminds me of they're a Viking people that mm-hmm. come from the icy north, or right. they are a a, a draft, you know, a migrant desert culture or something like that.
1: Right, yeah. And obviously there's just a the straight permutations, mountain elves, forest elves, mountain humans, forest humans. How much farther did you break it down? What did you, did you find that some of them were sort of null sets? Like, you know, like, uh, ocean halflings are the same as ocean gnomes, no one cares. Or was there areas where you, you know, like you said, there's icy coastline, and there's temperate coastline. California Vikings are different from Norse Vikings. I think we can
2: all agree. They might be, but yeah. I didn't go quite that fine grained, because the design goals for Ancestry and Culture were both to give options, but also to make it familiarly Dungeons & Dragons. Right, yeah. So, for example, there just are more elf options than mm. there are boggle options. Right, yeah. Right? Just so.
1: more elves. gonna be fun. That's terrific. Do you have more Drilling down to do an ancestry and culture. You basically shot your shot and said your piece.
2: I think with ancestry and culture. Yes Um, the main thing that I liked about that was really the original book that had Mm -hmm. the pedagogical sort of essay at the beginning that Mm -hmm. kind of laid out the case and and gave the basic tools for use using ancestry and culture choices instead of just race Mixed ancestry choices, etc. And then it was just uh, iterating on those themes I've since taken the principles though and used them in other games, like a superhero game, and where you can instead of choosing to make Iron Founderson the human raised by dwarves, mm-hmm. Peter Kratchit, you can choose a human raised by aliens or an alien raised by humans, like right. Superman and Star Lord. Exactly
1: right. right. And you've done that in your own gaming, or you've done that as a product that other people can uh, benefit from.
2: Well, both, but, uh, so it appears more primarily in S5e, Superheroic role-playing for fifth edition. Oh, fantastic. Which kickstarted last year and is the PDF has been delivered to backers, but the company that I worked with was Sigil Entertainment and they just merged with Pinnacle. And- right. Yeah. So Pinnacle is now putting out this, going to put up a new line of S5e superhero game mm-hmm. books for fifth edition. And, uh, I'm going to help them design some of those.
1: That sounds terrific. Now, when you're trying to translate i mean you you're you're dealing with one of the trickier design goals anyway which is supers games mm. because in theory you want to have something where batman and superman and the atom all have something to do right, right? and they all look cool Yes, And that is a tough road to hoe. I mean, I, I don't know uh, which Justice League incarnation you grew up with, but so often mm-hmm. it would be like, well, it's just elongated man, green arrow and the atom hanging out the satellite because, gosh darn it, Superman and Green Lantern are on a mission in space because mm-hmm. they would have solved the problem in one panel. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're doing a supers game, that's already a giant challenge. And then you have the less ornate than it used to be, but still fairly constrictive class level architecture the d20 swinginess Mm. of 5e Mm. where did you see the sweet spot how did you meld the probably the hardest major genre Mm. and a i don't say unforgiving but a a robust Mm. rule set and still keep that recognizable because the reason obviously there's something in 5e is so that other people who play 5e can play your game without relearning everything. Right. Where did you find that sweet spot? Because I would not have tried that myself.
2: Well, you know, I was inspired by Astrogenesis, actually. Right. So seeing that... By Rich uh, Clue flair right. Yeah, yes. so Rich took um, 5e and made it for sci-fi. And I thought, well, what other genres might I do? And supers is kind of, at least at the time, my design was kind of underserved. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I I created classes that kind of Describe broad roles, but mm-hmm. I gave enough tools when choosing powers to diversify quite a bit. So basically the, the shorthand here, the kind of under the hood design principles are when you choose your powers, you're basically choosing a spell list, mm-hmm. right? And there's spell lists that specialize on like elemental blasting or, right. you know, using your body to do damage mm-hmm. or et cetera, psychic. And then there's a general one, because any any one, any number of kinds of heroes might be able to fly. It's exceptionally tough or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so um the classes describe broad roles. One of the classes, for example, is going to be like special agent, and that's going to have subclasses of investigator, which are detective, which are going to be like Batman, and blah, blah, blah. The trick, of course, was getting them all the powers to line up such that the game is playable at all 20 levels with different kinds of classes interacting. but I found that it's not significantly more difficult to do that than to balance a wizard, a rogue, and a fighter at level 17 or something because their powers are so different and it might be that sometimes the rogue is the hero and sometimes the wizard is and sometimes the fighter is. but I think that there my goal was always to have the balance, the, the D&D range of possible outcomes be my external limits. Right. So as long as I designed within that space, I knew that I would be able, honestly, to kind of lean a little bit on all of the design work that's already gone into 5e, mm-hmm. trusting some of their work on, you know, bounded uh, accuracy and things like that. Right. So it ended up working okay. Uh, what I had to do, though, was change the mechanics enough To make it feel like a superheroes game and not a Dungeons and Dragons game. Right. And for me, I thought the core element that is in D&D, classically, that does not belong in a superhero game, is scarcity mechanics. Right. Right? I mean, imagine, you know, Human Torch says, flame on! And then there's... Twenty minutes later another bad guy shows up and he's like, sorry guys, I'm out of spell slot. Yeah. Every so
1: often Spider-Man would run out of web fluid, but that's about the only major example that we can think of. Maybe Green Arrow runs out of arrows, but not very often at all. Oh, right.
2: Yeah. yeah. And um so what I did was basically, um, as you level up in the game, what becomes like the leveled powers become cantrips. Right. So like when you're level ten and you're casting, you're able to cast fifth, sixth, seventh levels, fifth level spells or powers in this case, well, guess what? The third level and down are all at will now. Mm -hmm. And so you get a growing power feel, like, oh, I could cast Fireball literally every turn all day? Mm -hmm. Yes, you can. But good news is, as Jeremy Crawford has revealed, they designed the game with the assumption that every battle, every player will use all their resources. Right. Which means... Technically speaking, the game is designed to sustain you casting Fireball every round.
1: Right, right.
2: So I said, well, then let's just allow them to do that. Let's
1: just, yeah, always amplify the player's fun and sense of heroism because exactly. that's why you're here doing this instead of something else.
2: Yeah, so th- those, and then just leaning hard into some familiar tropes that everybody would recognize as, mm-hmm. oh, this feels very much like Green Lantern, or, you know, of course. I don't have the rights. I'm no. Not, Matt Forbeck has we, those. We, with, none of us have the rights. With Marvel. Right, yeah. Um, so I uh, had to, you know,
1: whatever. Make a little wink. Yeah, yeah. Sylvan Arrow. Yes. Your just, favorite hero. You know, that guy that came from the sky and was raised by farm people in maybe it was Iowa. I forget. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. So uh, talking about the foregoing work, I guess the sort of the your peer competitor would be Mutants and Masterminds by the great Steve Kenson. Mm-hmm. Did you uh have to stay away from mutants and masterminds? Do you lean into that and say anything mutants and masterminds can do, I have to be able to do. Because when I did Nights Black Agents, mm-hmm. I absolutely looked at Spycraft hard. Yeah. And I said, if you can do it in Spycraft, you have to be able to do it in Nice Black Agents. Absolutely. And and that was was that your approach for mutants and masterminds? It
2: was. And of course I mutants yeah. and Masterminds is a wonderful game. Yeah, it's right? terrific. And so what I wanted to do is create the possibilities for players in that would be equivalent but I wanted to bring, because I think Mutants and Masterminds has more complexity than standard 5e. Yeah, I think it does. So I wanted to bring a little bit more streamlined and uh, fun kind of player experience right. that would be a little faster at the table. Mm-hmm. So um, you might not be able to min-max and absolutely customize in every detail. But, of course, I also, my game does not allow you to do that to the extent that heroes on unlimited. Right, exactly. Like, or champions or whatever else. Right. Right. There's much more heavy games.
1: Yeah, uh, Museum Masterminds is definitely the the beautiful child of Champions and 3E, mm-hmm. and it shows. And yeah. those are beautiful parents, but every baby is beautiful in their own way. What have you got in the future then? You've got you've tackled fantasy ancestries and cultures. You've got your supers mm-hmm. nailed out rich has got science fiction locked down what's up what's next
2: well i'm helping uh, design the fifth edition version of deadlands oh fantastic so i'm taking on another genre right Right, yeah uh so that's fun i now work as the one of the lead designers at 2c gaming and i just finished so they do a lot of the like epic tier stuff as of their previous books but now they're working more on you know And I just finished working with WebDM, the YouTube channel, Uh on their book, Weird Wastelands. Okay. Uh, So we're doing that. We've got a project coming up with Ghostfire Gaming and a few other things that haven't been announced yet. So I'm also doing design with them.
1: So just parlaying design skills and uh, making other people's games, bringing them into the board.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. Yeah. That's great. I mean... That's the sort of, you know, thing that people, I think, when they think, Oh, I want to be a game designer. I think they think of like your career, right? I want to make a giant improvement to D and D. I want to make a supers game. <laughs> and then I want to go out and, and touch other games and make them cooler and more accessible. That yeah. sounds like a, a, do you have a white whale? Do you have a, a yeah. dream gig? Do you have something that you're, you know, staring down? Are you coming after vampire
2: next? Oh my.
1: I'd love to. In which case it's Renegade's problem, not mine, thank God. <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly. I think someone's already done that quite well. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, well, I'm a college professor by day, philosophy mm-hmm. professor. Right. And so I'd love to design, and I study the Enlightenment. So I'd love to design a historical fantasy game set in like the French Revolution.
1: Oh, fantastic. And right down my alley. Mm-hmm. Well, there we go. I mean, we've started with Arctic. Humans who live on a coastline, mm-hmm. and we've gotten to the French to the French Revolution. I feel like if that's not a story arc, a career arc, an artistic arc, nothing is right. Gwen, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks mm-hmm. for you know improving races. For God's sake, it's <laughs> a little weird that no one did it until you, but I'm glad you did it. And is there a place people can follow you or stay in touch? What's where? Where is uh, the Gwen Marshall availability?
2: Uh, Gwen underscore H underscore Marshall at Twitter is probably the best place. Alright, well,
1: there you go kids. You've got a new follow. Um, if you don't have Ancestries and Cultures, definitely look into it. Certainly look into it if you're designing historical uh, 5e role-playing stuff. (laughs) And uh, until next time, listen to a lovely ad. You know, improve your life that way. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled... and six guns role playing game western. How do you say "slap leather
0: varmint" in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Save this podcast from Egregor Revenge by ritualizing with such beloved Patreon backers as John W. S. Marvin, John Bisco, Scott Jones, Darren Dumay, and Robert Dean.
0: It's time for us to put together a stat block and perhaps also lay in some uh, anti-monster potions and other ways of uh, fighting the things that want to stop us from getting our, our treasure and our experience points because we're once more in that most monstery of huts, the Monster Hut. And Ooh. this time around, I thought we would uh, discuss, I think, sort of a, a lesser-known creature in sort of the uh, the wraith or insubstantial entity sort of uh, area of your monsterdom, and that would be the egregore, but it's one with a uh, big historical provenance, and one can apparently, I've i have hit upon a, a creature that you have been chomping at the bit to uh, tell us all about. So I think you're going to tell us about the historical egregore, and then I'll use it as an example of how I adapted it to a specific uh, setting
1: and its... Uh, needs. All right. So, as far as I can tell, the Egregore enters F-20 through the offices of our good friend, Eric Mona, and that should clue you in that we're dealing with deep... Rosicrucianism, Martinism, theosophy, all that good stuff. Uh, the Ergagor begins from the word uh, agrogoros, which means wakeful and a lot of other attached things, including resurrected and uh, watchful uh, in ancient Greek. It's a translation of the Aramaic original from the book of Daniel, in which the watcher or Egregore, is the angel who turns Nebuchadnezzar into a grazing beast. And if you all remember from the book of Daniel, he eats uh, grass like an ox and uh, it gets rained on for seven years. Conventional archaeology has not yet discovered this part of Nebuchadnezzar's career, but, you know, I'm sure that eventually well, they're going
0: to leave much of a trace. Well, I mean,
1: yeah. And they wouldn't
0: you like build a lot of stuff while you're a, a cow.
1: Right. And put up a big sign that says, please do not feed the emperor Nebuchadnezzar. He only yep. eats grass. And so uh, that concept got adapted by probably Jewish mystics, but maybe there's an outside chance they were Gnostic Christian mystics into uh, what are called the books of Enoch the books of Enoch go into great depth, as uh, apocryphal books often do, into the Watchers, uh, the Erin in uh, Hebrew, which is from the Aramaic. The Slavonic book of Enoch calls them the Gregory, in which context you may have run into them. And it treats them as fallen angels or demi-angels, and there are either seven or two hundred or two million, depending on which version... Depending of the, on the, the immediate needs of the author while making stuff up. Their leader is an angel or an egregore named Samyaza, and they sort of fall onto the world at the uh, mid-bit of Genesis, and they instruct mankind in the various philosophies and arts, such as sorcery, astronomy... Cosmetics, you know the basic power arts. So they're
0: they're sort of culture heroes, right? But the the culture that you're that they're giving us is not necessarily the the the, uh, most strict godly culture, right? But things that encourage us to like do terrible things, like adorn ourselves, or work magic, or think for
1: ourselves with philosophy. Yep, they're bad. Oh, they're you know they're certainly. Bad In the sort of, you know, shake your fist, don't let me catch you doing that again, Egregore. They have been identified by some folks, I, I don't even necessarily want to say scholars, as the sons of God from Genesis 6 that go down and breed amongst the daughters of men and make the Nephilim, the giants. Um, so, that's maybe what the Egregores are. There is a possibility that John D was thinking of them when he talked about the angels of the watchtowers and the governors of the subethers that are assigned to the various regions of the earth. Uh, Victor Hugo then mentions them in Legend of the Centuries as one more sort of demon, and I think that's probably what puts it into the mainstream of French occultism. Eliphas Levi talks about them as terrible beings in The Great Arcanum that crush us without pity because they are unaware of our existence. Conflating them with the planetary angel spirits, he says, these colossal forces have sometimes taken a shape and have appeared in the guise of giants. These are the egregores of the Book of Enoch. He says, don't use them; they're very dangerous. Right,
0: and so this is why, in the English-speaking world, we're not uh, really up on our egregores. Is that they really got developed by uh, the French in the 19th century? Yeah, and so uh, you know, eventually, if you're scraping all books of occultism for the name of a different D&D monster, you will hit upon them. (laughs) But it didn't start in the uh, AD&D monster manual. It took a long time to uh, eventually get to them.
1: And uh, once the French got a hold of it, they took it on a sort of a side trip. And this happens as early as 1938. A hermeticist and buddy of Andre Breton named Pierre Mobile writes a book called Egregore's The Life of Civilizations and says, I call egregore a word formally used by hermetists, the human group endowed with a personality different from that of the individuals who form it. And that leads it to become a sort of a group form of a ritual group. Yes. And it's and that's blatant term jacking right exactly. there. <laughs> yeah.
0: no- nothing to do with any other uh, egregore. Uh, but it's a lot like taking a, a random name for from mythology and making it the basis of a vampire
1: clan or, indeed, a D&D monster. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of other occultists that talk about the Egregore's the group form. This gets developed over the next century. The Polish occultist Muni Sadhu uh, has a nice sort of definition of the Egregore when he says it is as if... Every one of the members of a ritual group or a group of any kind is repeating the drawing of a plan, placing a pencil again and again along the same contours. The thing grows in strength, develops an astrosome, and I just wanted to do that quote because I just wanted to say astrosome. What a great word. Yep. And it becomes an egregore. And Sadu may have picked it up from uh, Grigory Mebez, who was a Russian Martinist who was initiated by Pappas, our old buddy, um, who was a people of Eliphas Levy. By the 80s, it has definitely become a group thought form, like a group tulpa. Uh, similarly to a tulpa
0: yeah like a, a gestalt tulpa if right you
1: will. and sometimes considered to be unconscious sometimes considered to be uh deliberately generated or unconsciously generated through ritual but then maintained deliberately uh, often through tulku initiates uh which are people like the dalai lama that get reincarnated and uh, bring wisdom down uh through the uh, channels rene guanon who on the one hand is a fascist, but on the other hand has, te- has no truck for term jacking, says, uh, this is a fantasy of modern occultist language and says it was Alephis Levy's fault. French Wiktionary blames Stanislas de Gaita. I feel like they're probably both at fault. The term you see it uh, being used now. To be th- thread jacked yet again. Post rationalists, they call themselves this on the internet, often refer to the collective mainstream orthodox approved belief systems, uh, like a memeplex, that drive uh, quote unquote NPCs, people who can't think for themselves and need to download their opinions from, you know, uh, the, you know, CNN. And uh, hey, look. Uh, Robin, the the post-rationalists have invented Gnosticism again, so good for them.
0: Yeah, it's it's as if there's a great psychic market
1: for uh, something horrible. And then my personal hero, Jocelyn Godwin, tries to square the circle between the old good egregore and the new weird egregore by saying that egregors are patterns of energy or power, and they are fueled by belief, sacrifice, and ritual. And so you could speak of the egregore of Rome uh, that was maintained by the civic religion and by the Flamenes, but in the way that D has these sub subethers that are in charge of specific regions of the world, you could say that each region has their own Watcher, their own guardian angel, their own egregore, and that that region, as it develops the ritual necessary to focus the attention of that egregore, develops what the later occultists think of as the group thought form, and that the egregore becomes sort of the pattern or the uh, uh, accumulator between the supernatural and the political. And so the question is, are collective energy egregores self-aware, like jinn or like angels, Are they just conduits of power, like elementals or thunderbolts, or are they kind of weirdly both, like corporations? And that, of course, is where sort of the fun meat of the modern egregore question arises, because, you know, the post-rats would say, you know, CNN is producing its product without thought, it is being consumed without thought, but some. How it takes action to expand and, uh, defend itself like a, a virus does. Uh, that's, you know, good old Dawkins meme theory. But you can also say, once something is doing all that, how can you differentiate that from an intelligence, even a rude or animal intelligence, uh, much less a demonic intelligence? And nowadays you have, uh, we're, we're back around where, uh, New Age people writing about egregores are doing the same thing that they're, that, uh, Eliphas Levine was where they say egregores exist. They're very powerful. They, uh, have conspired to create the world. So again, we're borrowing from the post rats and the Gnostics. And here's how you stop them. And, uh, you stop them, as it turns out, by blaspheming against them or by a bigger and better egregore, i.e. Jesus and God. And you, whenever you do any other kind of ritual, you always have to do, you know, um, you know, sign of the cross and uh, pray to God in the name of Jesus, and that short circuits the Egregore's pagan separate power. It reminds those fallen angels, you know, who's in charge, right. and, it's, and, and
0: that's your Martinism right there, your yeah, use right of conservative Catholicism that actual conservative Catholics would abjure <laughs> yeah. in order to <laughs> because you're uh,
1: control tie into a the, bunch of egregore yeah, nonsense, wizardness
0: <laughs> stuff. So because uh, Papus and de Guaita, uh wrote about them, and it was a, a specifically a thing that was interesting to French occultists of the uh, Belle Epoque, of course, they have to show up in the Yellow king, and the uh, setting of the Yellow King is one in which all supernatural forces have the same origin point that they are essentially our human thoughts that are then activated by carcosan energy and uh, entities and the idea is is that there are if there have been actual supernatural occurrences in the past, that's other times. When Carcosa intruded into our world. And so the object here is not to create the canonical egregore, whatever that is, since it changes every generation. <laughs> since the canon is
1: literally shifting as yeah. your players are doing things.
0: But to take the fact that the idea of an egregore exists and then something nasty and Carcosan comes along to fill it. And so uh, in the Paris setting, that's the ghost, the shade of a dead. Carcosan noble so it's a being so powerful uh that it still kind of lives and can sort of ride people's thoughts about egregores into becoming an egregore so it's not it's not quite a tulpa because it's not trying to pose as a person but it's definitely sort of riding on the belief system
1: and it's not a tulpa because it preexisted the ritual that created it or awakened it
0: Exactly. uh, I guess if you deliberately tried to create a a tulpa, uh, an egregore of this style could pop on in and start to torment you. But an idea I uh, haven't yet developed much is like, what would they continue to be if they changed if uh, beliefs about egregores changed? And so it would also make sense, I think, and this is normal now for them to reconfigure themselves as sort of the spirit of certain groups and that they... Now become a collective mind form, especially in an era when people are deliberately using memes and talking about this stuff, and all of the people who are united by joining into a certain subculture, the egregore can then kind of glom onto that and become their collective patron spirit. And, of course, they're Karkosans. They're not nice. And so, (laughs) uh, you could easily see you know a a particular band of people who were united by their uh, beliefs about uh, memes or their nft collections or whatever it is be uh, preyed upon uh, by an egregore who sort of makes things all good for them for a while as long as they stick into the group but then they take advantage of that the dark side of a group dynamic and start to get them to turn on each other and call each other out on the internet and split into (laughs) different uh, groups and uh, go to uh, battle at each other and sort of feed on that um, malign psychic energy.
1: Yeah, the, the notion of a, what what would you call it, a, a retrograde egregore, an egregore that doesn't actually gain power from collective action but gains power from dedicated action in the service of the collective, if you follow me. So, the reason you're expelling someone, you're canceling them, you're calling them out, is because they're not fit to be in the group. And you're still thinking about the group even as you're destroying the group from within, and it's that act of thinking, that act of self cannibalization, that makes the egregore, in this case, the sort of inverted right. egregore, strong. Because
0: there's nothing more groupy than making your group ever and ever smaller until there's right until there's only you. And, left.
1: and the the egregore, you know, it, I, I guess you could assume that it's a sort of a trade-off, and that some egregores are like, no, we just want to keep our group fat and happy. And we don't want to have a purge, even though that builds up a, a huge amount of purge energy, because then we might purge ourselves out of existence. Yeah. You're, you're
0: eating your seed corn,
1: right? It's exactly. A
0: desperation move. If you really need a psych- lot of psychic energy fast, perhaps to fight the other egregore who belongs mm-hmm. to the oppo- er, and controls the opposing group. It's like, oh, well, I guess we'll have to, uh, you know, have uh, Steve canceled. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's too bad. I, You know, I've gotten a lot of energy from Steve over the years, but I need a lot right now. Mm -hmm. So let's get him uh, canceled. Of course, in a horror uh, scenario, that means, you know, knifed or thrown down an elevator shaft or what have you.
1: Or he just, like, uh, wisps away because, you know, the protection of the group, the power of the group. I mean, Steve has been drawing, perhaps unconsciously, ritual power from his membership in the group as well. And when it's cut off from him, suddenly he's developed this, you know, Wound that won't heal or, the, you know, his he's got anemia, pernicious anemia. Something's wrong with Steve because he's being cut off from the source of occult power that he unknowingly made a deal with and suckled at the teat of until it yes, threw him out.
0: So Steve is the friend of the player characters who comes and shows them the weird black separating wound uh, that he can't heal ever since he was... Uh, kicked out of uh, the neo post rationalists and then <laughs> those guys, uh, you, the uh, regular folk uh, investigators of this is normal. Now then have to go and uh, track it down and that's your way into discovering the, the world of uh, egregores.
1: I do want to leave you with another Very wise anti-Egregore methodology. The alchemist and occultist Jean Dubuis founded a group called the philosophers of nature in 1979 and deliberately did so without rituals because he didn't want to make an (laughs) Egregore. So, he says, we're all in a magic group, but we don't have meetings, we don't have costumes, we don't have uniforms, we don't have rituals, we're just in the group.
0: Wait a minute, that's Unitarian.
1: That's Yeah, so Unitarianism is apparently also an egregoric by nature, although, of course, I'm sure, and Unitarian people can feel free to write in, but I'm, I'm sure that they have their own... Angry back and forth. Oh, within there's his, a lot of uh, kicking people out of uh, Unitarianism. Right kicking people out of the Unitarian Church for being yeah. not Unit or not notarian enough.
0: Well, before I guess Ken, you and I have to kick each other out uh, on behalf of our affected agrivars. We better duck under this commercial and see where we come up. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents
1: to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic state in a reign of depraved brutality.
0: From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for harrowing
1: infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts.
0: A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying Crime and backroom
1: deals, new rituals, new tomes, and the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF or pre order your glistening hardback slated for October release.
0: It's time once more to wend our way up the creaky cobweb stairs. We're going to stop on the landing, we're going to wave. At the portrait of the King of the Fire Salamanders. He's going to give us a little friendly wink, as is his wont. And then we're going to swan in to the parlor of the consulting occultist. He's waiting there in a smoking jacket to share yet another story of California cultism. And this is one of those ones where uh, the circus is strong. <laughs> because we're going to look at the story of edith Maida lessing and uh she's a a a lot of fun and uh crosses a lot of uh, cultural streams sort of before the uh kind of film noir era starts in los angeles she's more sort of the the silent era but she wasn't silent because among many other things she was a songwriter yeah Uh, but before that she had to be born in 1875 in evergreen texas
1: yeah her father was a judge they were good people she had a early talent for versification she used to perform at you know various uh uh, area functions she's married in 1896 her son is born she may may have gotten divorced uh, remarries again in 1903. That husband dies in 1904. At some point, she sublimates that energy into poetry, writes a book of poems called Insurrection and Other Poems. That comes out in 1905. She is the poet laureate of the Women's Press Association of Texas by this point, which implies a job as a journalist. She moves to San Diego. And eventually, by 1909, she's married. And this time, it seems to have stuck to a Dr. Cook in Los Angeles. In 1898, she had written a patriotic song about the Spanish-American War called When the Boys Go Marching By that did some business and settled in under Dr. Cook's uh, sheltering arm, one assumes. Uh, She starts a series of banger Songs. Uh, Don't Forget Tomorrow Night. Uh, she has two huge hits in 1912, You Circus Day, and Just As the Ship Went Down, a song about the Titanic. Both of them did crazy numbers. She also wrote minstrel songs. One of them was When Crazy Joe Did the Alligator Slide, Go Into the County Fair. Uh, all those are 1912. That seems to be her Annis Maribilis. Another song called My Beautiful Passion Flower. Then, at some point, She gets uh, seduced into the film world in 1915. She writes the lyrics to The Jitney Bus, which is a song that accompanies the Chaplin film A Jitney Elopement. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you're writing lyrics to a song that will be played on a pianola as a silent movie plays. What's that about? It's called tie-ins, Robin. That's what it's called. (laughs) We did not invent cross promotion. No, we did not. Then the Hearst papers, uh, like her, like the cut of her jib well enough that they hire her to write a song called Look Out California Beware about the Japanese threat. Uh, This is 1916, so it's like two Japanese threats ago. That's, that's how Hearst papery they are. And then at some point she actually gets in front of the camera. She plays the clairvoyant Countess Casanova in a film by William Desmond Taylor in 1918 called his majesty bunker bean. And the 1920 census lists her as a movie actress. Now, before anyone starts hunting her down on the IMDb's, that's it for IMDb. Lots of people have called themselves a movie actress and only been in one movie but also lots of silent films are just gone forever. So pays your money and takes your choice, Robin. That's what I say. Right.
0: But this takes her into a period of spiritual ferment in (laughs) California, which in the twenties and thirties is a new burned over district and seems like a a new line of business and fun occurs to
1: her. Yeah, she starts going by the name Madame. Uh, possibly she got, you know, twigged by playing a clairvoyant in the movies. Possibly this has always been an aspect of her personality and belief system. And she starts a love colony in Glassell Park, which is in northeast Los Angeles. It's sort of open country called Mount Helios. And its principles are free love and communal property. Uh, they fly a red flag, lettered love, which in 1920, flying a red flag of any kind was a bit of a, you know, red flag to a bull, literally.
0: So, is the husband still in on all this? Or is He's
1: still alive, but I don't know to what extent she and he are keeping company, because she definitely is uh, an exponent of free love and the abolition of civil marriage. And I feel like, as a married man myself, there's only two ways that story goes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's either, either you're allowed to uh, also reap the benefits of that or you're uh, back home uh, paying the bills.
1: Concerning your medical practice and saying, Edith Less? No, I don't know the name. Sounds interesting. She is quoted, perhaps inexactly, in the magazine Captain Billy's Whizbang as saying, Here will I commune with the Eternal. Here will I show the bungalow sweeties. That I am no piker. She sets up this giant tent city, claims that there's a thousand men living in it, that she controls them. Controls them how? asks the Los Angeles newspapers eagerly. She has a goat farm to make milk for all the babies that her love farm is going, her love uh, colony is going to make, so that uh, the mothers don't have to stay home and nurse. She proposes the establishment in Los Angeles, one assumes, and then throughout the land of temples to Hymen, who is the Greek god of marriage. Names herself the high priestess, dresses in a purple gown trimmed with gold, bobs her hair, Robin, in a true radical style, according to uh, gossips and neighbors.
0: It's just, it's just the old Greek goddess style. Exactly.
1: Yeah. They testify that Mount Helios presented a play in which the men wore loincloths and the women only thin draperies, Robin. So with that kind of activity, you know that they're going to be raided by the Red Squad the anarchist squad that hunted down political radicals. They raided Mount Helios in July of 1921. They found a bunch of subversive literature uh, labeled literally revolution in some cases, urging libertinism, the Red Squad gets testimony of uh, weird ceremonies before an altar in the main shack. Uh, She's arraigned in July. In 1922, she's found guilty of criminal syndication for sending obscene material, uh, specifically her yellow paper pamphlet, Civil Marriage, Why It Should Be Abolished, through the mail. She sent it uninvited to, like, Everyone in Los Angeles society, which is a great way to get in the newspapers, and also, I assume, raided by the Red Squad. She's sentenced to two years in the Reformatory for Women in Missouri, where she works with fallen women, as they were, I believe, still called at the time, teaching them useful skills, one assumes songwriting among them. Arrested again in 1925 for sending a new pamphlet, the Syllabus, which proposes elastic relationships, Robin, and is given the choice of probation at the cost of... You know, recanting her syllabus, but she says, "I can never recant true love, and so she goes back to prison while possibly she's in prison. Dr. Cook dies, she dies in nineteen thirty nine sadder, but I, I I guess not particularly wiser either because she picked prison over not prison, and all for the well, purpose she's of stuck
0: to her principles that's uh we're talking about her in consulting occultist, yeah, but she's definitely not a a writer on occult themes. she's more sort of riding a bunch of different cultural streams, and one of them is neo-paganism before there was neo-paganism. Yeah. And uh, that, I think, just kind of reflects the... Uh, it's as
1: though she treated neo-paganism as just an excuse to get naked and have a lot of sex, Robin, and that has never happened in the history of neo-paganism.
0: <laughs> right. But she's definitely part of a wider uh scene of uh interest in the spiritual, and if you want to set up a free love colony, of course, you're also going to talk about uh Temple's To the the Greek goddesses, and uh, you're going to affect that. It's part of a sort of uh, Edwardian culture of the time. And that just makes her sort of a fun, colorful uh, character. And I think uh, quite a sympathetic one compared to a lot of the so called cult leaders that we talk about I mean, because if, if the worst
1: thing that she ever did was control a thousand men and write anti-japanese propaganda for the hearsts. She is well on the good side of occultists.
0: Right. So there isn't this, the sign of the rampant abuse of her followers. The thousand men might've been notional. They might've been consenting. Yeah. So I think if we're going they, they might've
1: been hoping for somewhere between one and a thousand women to show up at some point. Right. Or at least for them to move higher up on the list. Right. And
0: yeah. so it's the twenties. So, uh, that puts her more in uh, Call of Cthulhu territory than Trail, but uh, I think she is the sympathetic side of the occult movement. Who is someone who shows up at the beginning? She's not going to have a lot of power. She's not going to be able to call Nodens to help you, but she probably does know the horrible weird cultist who tried to show up. And corrupt her free love colony, and she put the boots to him, but can put the investigators onto him and that horrible uh, tome that he was uh, dragging around with him.
1: Yeah, the trail investigators find that there's a, a Shubnagurath cult or some other kind of uh, Yagalanak behavior, some kind of badness is happening, and they trace them to the Mount Helios colony, and they're like, oh my goodness, the Mount Helios colony, that sounds exciting. And they you know, follow that to The release from prison, living quietly on her songwriting royalties, Edith Mida Lessing, and, you know, she's a beautiful, charismatic widow, and she's got a lovely song, she maybe plays something on the piano, and then also she says, oh, yes, Carl had no interest in waiting his turn amongst the thousand men, he wanted a shortcut, and I told him very plainly, there are no shortcuts, but you know, such and such. You know, you, you know, you can then tie Carl into weird uh, proto-satanic groups in Hollywood. You can tie Carl into straight-up love magic. He could have sought a darker power on the standing stones in Glassell Park. I assume they're standing stones. It's a big park. You know, whatever you want Carl to have been involved in, uh, she can be the sympathetic informer who tells you about uh, oh, well, we saw that he was a badden back in the day. Perhaps um, I can send you on your way with a lovely song about the county fair and That puts everyone in a happy mood. You can find OU Circus Day online on YouTube. You can even play it for the people if you wanted to.
0: And I suppose you could also have uh, someone sinister come along and uh, revive the cult for, uh, for worse purposes to make them into the people the Red Squad had them being. Could even be the case where the Red Squad decides to Uh, manufacture some evidence and they just happen to call on an incarnation of Nidacris to do it for them. And Mm. uh, she infiltrates them and all manner of uh, badness happens.
1: I mean, we do have weird ceremonies before an altar in a shack. So allegedly
0: that's, that's what, that's what their incarnation of Nidacris said happened.
1: Mm -hmm. And who would know better about a weird ceremony than Nidacris Robin? I ask you, right?
0: She had all the right details that they wanted. Mm -hmm. Well, on, on that note of an unexpectedly light and fun and nice cult leader it's time for us to uh draw a close to this episode but we'll be back next week with uh, more of our similar nonsense stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games hellgrain press asfagone arc dream dark tower and pro fantasy software
1: music as always is by james Semple. audio editing by rob borges Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash
0: Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from the wrath of Helios by joining such lovely backers as... Chris Leiden, Patrick Joint. Arian Poutsma. Brian Malcolm. And Drew Eichholz. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at
1: teepubliccom user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design. If the players do it, it's not a contrivance. On Twitter, he's at Height, And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when once again... We will talk about stuff.